In the world of literature, most genres are filled with authors who can be considered successful due to the unique writing and storytelling qualities that make them a popular choice for readers. Once in a while, an individual will come onto the literary scene whose works are so masterful and epitomise the genre they write so perfectly that they become giants. Their writing, their influence and their reputation sometimes remodel the entire industry which has to adapt to keep up with demand. Agatha Christie is one such giant. She holds the record as the best-selling fiction writer of all time, and her novels have sold more than two billion copies around the world. Her works never cease to be re-released in new publications. They have inspired countless theatre, TV, radio and film productions. And if one even thinks of fictional crime, the mind defaults to one of her creations. As synonymous as her name is with the world of crime fiction, in the winter of 1926, her own life seemed to mimic art, and on the 3rd of December, she was declared missing. Her disappearance sparked a manhunt, a storm of media speculation, and helped to bring a few unsavoury truths about Christie's life at home into the public eye. How could one of the most well-known writers of her time simply disappear? Many have speculated over the years, but, as is often the case, the truth is stranger than fiction. From our dark and sinister past, to the weird and wonderful every day, throughout human history we have shared stories. In this series, we will blow the dust off some of the most intriguing and lesser-known tales. Mysterious disappearances, strange phenomena, local legends, and events too incredible to be pure fiction. Welcome to Astonishing. Agatha Miller was born in September 1890 in Devon, England, the third child of an upper-middle-class family. She had a happy childhood. Her family lived in a large house in Torquay, and Agatha spent much of her time reading. Although her mother Clara thought little girls should not learn to read before the age of eight, Agatha was reading at four years old, favouring the books of E. Nesbitt and Lewis Carroll. In 1901, Agatha's father passed away due to kidney disease and pneumonia. She was 11 years old when it happened, and she later cited the event as the end of her childhood. Within a year, her two older siblings had moved out of the family home, and Agatha and Clara were left alone. By the age of 18, Agatha had spent some unsuccessful years training musically in Paris. She and her mother had taken a three-month-long winter holiday to Egypt. Agatha had attended countless dances and social functions, and even taken part in amateur plays with her friends. She settled into the position of companion to her mother, who had begun to suffer from multiple ailments, the beginning of a long, drawn-out deterioration. And it was while she was recuperating from an illness of her own that she started writing and completed her first short story, The House of Beauty. It concerns an outwardly idyllic household with a dark, rotten secret at its core, her early works tending to illustrate her fascination with the supernatural. Although Agatha submitted her writing to magazines under numerous pseudonyms, they were not well received and went unpublished. In 1912, Agatha met Archibald Christie at one of the many formal occasions she attended, 
She described him as having a great air of careless confidence about him. They fell in love quickly, and within three months, Archie had proposed marriage. It was not until the outbreak of the Great War in 1914, when Archie was sent to France as a soldier in the Royal Field Artillery, that upon his return home for Christmas, they married. After the war's end, Archie took a financial job, and Agatha gave birth to her first and only child, Rosalind, in August 1919. She returned to her passion of writing, after spending the war working as a nurse, and finally, in 1920, her novel, the Mysterious Affair at Styles was published. Archie became a financial advisor to the British Empire Exhibition in London's Wembley, a showcase of Britain's culture, technology and industry. A global tour was devised to promote it, and Archie and Agatha set off with the tour, leaving their daughter in the care of Agatha's mother and sister for ten months. They travelled to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and even Hawaii. It was in Waikiki, Ever the modern woman, Agatha became one of the first Britons to learn how to surf standing up. On their return to Britain, they bought a house in Sunningdale, in Berkshire. They dubbed the house Styles after the titular estate in Agatha's first novel. More books followed in subsequent years. Agatha was invited to join a committee of the 1925 Empire Exhibition to help design an area of the show named Children's Paradise. Also on this committee, was a young lady called Nancy Neal, ten years Agatha's junior. The area of the exhibition was a great success, and they became fast friends. Professional success had come quite quickly to the young family, and for a time, they were happy. The following year, however, things took a turn for the worse. In April, Agatha's mother passed away from her long battle with illness. This, and the burden of clearing her mother's belongings at the family home, took a heavy toll on Agatha's state of mind. Each had been the other's constant companion for most of Agatha's life, and they were exceptionally close. By August, it had been reported that Agatha had adjourned to a health facility on the French coast, suffering from overwork. But these were not the only reasons she left. Just before her departure, Archie had asked Agatha for a divorce. He had fallen in love with a young lady, none other than Nancy Neal, with whom he had been having a secret affair while attending high society soirees without Agatha. Despite this betrayal, they remained together, perhaps for the benefit of their daughter Rosalind, but they fought frequently. It was in the early winter of 1926 that something would happen that would change not only the immediate state the family were in, but influence and solidify Christie's reputation for being the ultimate writer of mysteries. On the evening of Friday the 3rd of December, 1926, Archie declared that he wanted to spend the weekend with friends, again, without Agatha. The couple argued ferociously. Agatha walked out of the house, got into her car, and drove off into the night. It was the last time Archie would see his wife for ten days. The following morning, a man named George Best made a discovery at Newlands Corner, a nature reserve in Surrey. It was Agatha's car, a Morris Cowley, found abandoned and empty. 
Newlands Corner is around 30 minutes by car southeast from Sunningdale. According to an article in the Times published three days later, the novelist's car was found abandoned near Guildford on the edge of a chalk pit, the front wheels actually overhanging the edge. The car evidently had run away, and only a thick hedge growth prevented it from plunging into the pit. The headlights, reportedly, were still on. Within the car, only an expired driving licence and some clothes were found. Agatha had by this time published several books, a collection of poetry and an enviable set of short stories. Her sixth novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, another mystery revolving around the investigator Hercule Poirot, was published in June of 1926. The Observer of London said that no one is more adroit than Miss Christie in the manipulation of false clues and irrelevances and red herrings. She was arguably the most famous writer of mystery novels in the world behind Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who later had a part to play in this story. Agatha had not just a public profile, but the makings of a persona, that of the master manipulator of confounding narratives. It was no surprise that her disappearance caused a media firestorm. The disappearance quickly became a long-running news story, as the press sought to satisfy their readers' zest for rumour and scandal. One newspaper offered a £100 reward for information about Agatha's whereabouts. Another, the Daily News, printed a series of mock-up photographs showing how Agatha might appear if she were in disguise. It was a media circus, the headlines travelled around the world making the front pages from America to Africa. Suspicion immediately fell upon Archie, who was forced to deny that he had any hand in Agatha's disappearance. Others simply suspected a cynical publicity stunt on Agatha's part, not that she needed to give her book sales a further boost. Even her admirers, well acquainted with the tropes of her fiction, assumed an attempt to put Archie in the frame. This seems to reflect an of-its-time general suspicion of intelligent self-made women, more than having any basis in fact. The furor which Agatha had inadvertently caused even reached the upper echelons of the British government. The Home Secretary at the time, William Johnson Hicks, put pressure on the police force to track her down swiftly. More than a thousand police officers and 15,000 volunteers searched the rural landscape around Newlands Corner and beyond. The services of six bloodhounds and several other dogs were also called upon. Notably, this was one of the first occasions on which the police were able to take to the skies in search of clues, with several aeroplanes joining the hunt. The police, by this time desperate, even searched Agatha's manuscripts for clues about her whereabouts. One such project was the unfinished draft for The Mystery of the Blue Train, which Christie had been struggling with, just as in real life. There was a conundrum, but no solution. Two other well-known mystery writers were drawn into the search. Dorothy Sayers and Arthur Conan Doyle were both recruited. Sayers, the author of the Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries, visited the scene of Agatha's abandoned car to search for clues. Unfortunately, this was fruitless. Conan Doyle, meanwhile, chose to exercise his burgeoning interest in the supernatural rather than use his powers of deduction. He visited a spirit medium and gave her one of Agatha's gloves to track her down cyclically, but it did not work. 
It's tempting to mock Conan Doyle's faith in the otherworldly, but this was a time when such beliefs were commonplace, and especially during the early 1900s, knowledge of the occult was a fashionable asset. He wasn't alone. A few well-intentioned spiritualists held a seance in the bushes at Newland's Corner to seek answers. That didn't work either, although the leader of the seance expressed the opinion that Agatha had met with foul play. We can only guess what the logically-minded Agatha would have thought of these attempts. As days went by, without substantial news, hopes for Agatha's safe recovery dimmed. By December the 10th, papers had begun to report that police detectives suspected suicide. They quickly connected the location of Agatha's car with the Silent Pool, a nearby lake said to be bottomless, according to local legend. Police did not discount the theory that Agatha could have walked here from her car with the intention of drowning. However, on the 11th of December, one week after Agatha's disappearance, a fresh revelation in the case was brought to light. The news that Agatha had written three letters prior to her disappearance. One was written to her secretary, Charlotte Fisher, one to her brother-in-law, and one to Archie. We don't know exactly what the letters stated. Agatha's letter to her brother-in-law was delivered and destroyed after reading. Likewise, Archie destroyed the letter which was left to him and refused to disclose its contents. Beyond that, they contained no indication of Agatha's whereabouts. The letter to her secretary was not released, but purportedly contained the words, I must get away. I cannot stay here in Sunningdale any longer. A few days later, signs began to appear that the steady stream of new tidbits from the case was beginning to dry up. Papers reported that close to the abandoned car, police found a bottle labelled poisoned lead and opium, fragments of a torn-up postcard, a woman's fur-lined coat, a box of face powder, the end of a loaf of bread, a cardboard box, and two children's books. Another story in the New York Times suggested an uncanny catalyst for Agatha's disappearance. The article said of the Christie House, It stands in a lonely lane, unlit at night, which has a reputation of being haunted. The lane has been the scene of a murder of a woman and the suicide of a man. It went on to quote her as saying, If I do not leave Sunningdale soon, Sunningdale will be the end of me. While the public's appetite for more news about Agatha's disappearance had not abated, the fuel to feed it certainly had. On Tuesday the 14th of December, ten days after she disappeared, a man named Bob Tappin was going about his usual business at work, getting ready to play in the band of a luxury hotel in Harrogate. While presumably walking along one of the corridors, he passed a familiar face. Perhaps, due to the amount of publicity surrounding the disappearance, he immediately recognised it as the face of missing novelist Agatha Christie. He alerted the police, who attended quickly, and at least a partial understanding of what happened eventually came to light. Agatha had arrived in Harrogate the day after she abandoned her car, checked in with no luggage, and set about wandering the halls and enjoying herself. Agatha was posing as a woman from Cape Town, South Africa, 
who had recently lost a child and was recuperating. One curious detail is that Agatha had checked in under the name Mrs. Tressa Neal. When asked by the press at the time why Agatha might have borrowed Nancy Neal's name, Archie naturally said he had no knowledge. He told reporters that she does not know who she is. She has suffered from the most complete loss of memory. When Archie appeared in Harrogate to meet Agatha, she met him with no more than a glare. The next day, Christie left for her sister's residence at Abney Hall in Cheadle, where she was sequestered in a guarded hall, gates locked, telephone cut off, and callers turned away. The mystery, it seemed, was solved. Just a few weeks later, in January 1927, Agatha took Rosalind and her secretary to a resort in Las Palmas, in the Canary Islands. Agatha intended to remain there until her recovery from exhaustion and stress was complete. She didn't return for three months. After the Führer had subsided, two doctors diagnosed Agatha as suffering from an unquestionable, genuine loss of memory, matching her own understanding of her experiences. Others have recently suggested that Agatha entered a fugue state between her crash and her discovery in Harrogate. The fact that Agatha did nothing to prepare for a long journey and a hotel stay supports this. But her elaborate backstory for Tressa Neal, and that Agatha had written no fewer than three letters before she left, also seems to confirm that her flight was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Others suggested that Christie disappeared during a nervous breakdown, conscious of her actions but not of sound mind. Numerous factors could have contributed to her state of mind, perhaps none of them greater than her crumbling marriage to Archie and the fear of losing him to another woman. Her mother's recent passing, as well as her own illness, wouldn't have been far from the front of her mind. She may also have feared losing her daughter Rosalind in a bitter custody battle. Agatha had endured much more than any of her peers at the age of just 36. Persistent rumours suggested that Agatha had attempted to embarrass her husband or to frame him for her murder. Recent evidence has suggested that Agatha's actions may indeed have been motivated by the desire to turn up the heat on her husband, but not in the way one might expect. In the year 2000, the daughter of Agatha's sister-in-law claimed that every aspect of Agatha's escape had been predetermined. Judith Gardner claimed that, at a young age, she witnessed her mother, Nan Watts, reminiscing over the events with Agatha. Gardner alleges that her mother accompanied Agatha to her home in London the night of the disappearance and bundled her onto a train to Yorkshire the following morning. Gardner goes on to allege that Agatha desperately wanted to stay with Archie and merely wanted to give him a shock. She wasn't suffering from a lapse of memory when she signed the hotel's register as Miss Neal. However, the stunt backfired. Agatha was shocked by the media frenzy. Janet Morgan, Agatha's biographer, disputes Gardner's account. Morgan maintained that Agatha was disoriented during and after her disappearance. The task of untangling Agatha's real state of mind is made tricky by the misinformation and rumour which was printed over those ten days. The letters which Agatha wrote, seeming to confirm that she was in full control of her senses on the eve of her disappearance, 
were never released by Archie or her brother-in-law. But the contents of the letter to her secretary Charlotte were made known, and didn't suggest that she had to get out of Sunningdale. It simply asked her secretary to cancel an engagement. As in so many cases, the press found the rumour more enticing than the fact. The disappearance was dramatised in the film Agatha in 1979, with the author portrayed by Vanessa Redgrave. The film shows Agatha fleeing her abusive husband and getting wrapped up in a dramatic yarn during her stay in Harrogate, all invented of course, and the Christie estate attempted to stop the making of the film. The studio behind the film, Warner Brothers, allegedly paid the Hollywood psychic Tamara Rand to organise a seance, with the goal of locating Agatha's secret diary concerning the events and hyping up the film's release. Rand actually did lead searchers to Agatha's regular room at the Pera Palace in Istanbul, in which she wrote Murder on the Orient Express. When the floorboards were pulled up, in sight of the world's press, they found an 8cm long key. At this point, the hotel manager confiscated the key and demanded $2 million from Warner Brothers, which they paid. The studio organised another seance to locate the box which the key opened, but Rand was unsuccessful this time. The search was abandoned. More than 50 years later, Agatha's disappearance still had the ability to send the whole world into a frenzy. Perhaps the best place to find a definitive answer is to look to the author herself. Agatha's autobiography makes no reference to the disappearance. She seldom discussed the incident even amongst friends. The subject was off the table, the ultimate taboo. Agatha alluded to it just once, two years after the events, in a conversation with the Daily Mail. She talks of the quarry where she left the car and how she had driven past it a few hours earlier. She said, There came into my mind the thought of driving into it, However, as my daughter was with me in the car, I dismissed the idea at once. That night I felt terribly miserable. I felt I could go on no longer. I left home that night in a state of high nervous strain with the intention of doing something desperate. When I reached a point on the road which I thought was near the quarry, I turned the car off the road, down the hill toward it. I left the wheel and let the car run. The car struck something with a jerk and pulled up suddenly. I was flung against the steering wheel and my head hit something. Up to this moment, I was Mrs Christie. Agatha talks of a single dissociative moment. A split second separating her life with Archie and Rosalind and her journey across the country. The strain caused by Agatha's disappearance and the existing tensions in her marriage to Archie were simply impossible to overcome. Agatha petitioned for divorce in April 1928 and it was made official in October. She married the noted archaeologist Max Malawan, whom she met while both were on a dig in Baghdad in 1930. They would remain married for the rest of her life. In a rather unsavoury move, Archie and Nancy Neal would marry one week after his divorce to Agatha came through. 
Agatha's daughter Rosalind led a quiet life and married twice like her mother. Though Rosalind's first husband was killed in combat, she remained married to her second husband for 55 years. She fiercely guarded her mother's estate and the integrity of her legacy. Agatha would go on to publish 66 books and become the best-selling fiction writer of all time. The missing pages of Agatha's life story certainly provide an insight into an artistic mind under unimaginable pressure. It's perhaps too glib to read into the actions of a crime fiction writer the typical features of a mystery. We know the motive and the means, but there are still gaps. If there's one thing we know about Agatha Christie's stories, it's that the loose ends are tied by the conclusion. In Agatha's autobiography published 50 years later, she reflects on her own character and suggests that her true disposition remained unknown even to her. She states, The house in which the spirit dwells, grows, develops instincts and tastes and emotions and intellectual capacities. But I myself, the true Agatha, am the same. I do not know the whole Agatha. The whole Agatha, so I believe, is known only to God. Mercurial and passionate, and unmistakably one of the greatest authors in living memory, Agatha knew that some mysteries would always remain unsolved. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's story. Head to astonishingpodcast.com to find information about the podcast, as well as links to our Instagram, Twitter and Facebook pages, with teasers on upcoming episodes. If you'd like to support us, you can also donate directly at supporter.acast.com forward slash astonishing. Your support allows us to invest in better equipment for improving the recording and sound quality of our podcast, and ensures we can continue to produce it. In the next episode, we'll explore the legitimacy of the most frequently debated urban legend in Britain, that of the large, wild creatures that seem to have been stalking the British countryside for decades. Are rural communities really being terrorised by large non-native species, or can these accounts be explained away? You've been listening to Astonishing.